You're listening to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. This is episode 1612, Professional Permaculture Education. My guest for this episode is Eric Olson, founder of Permaculture Artisans and co-founder and executive director of the Permaculture Skills Center in Sebastopol, California. A previous guest on the show, he joins me today to examine the idea of what it means to gain a permaculture-rooted education that takes our practices beyond an introductory level. This leads us to talk about the Ecological Landscape Immersion Program taught at PSC, the role of mentoring, the results of Miriam Vallot's work at the Farm School, and we eventually touch on some of the shortcomings of a permaculture design course for anyone wanting to practice as a professional. Before we begin, I'd like to thank the sponsors who, along with you, the listener, help keep this show going and growing. In addition to permikids.com, the sponsors of the day are Your Garden Solution, and The Good Seed Company. Your Garden Solution is a Pennsylvania-based business run by a permaculture practitioner and their business partner that helps people to garden using the techniques developed by Mel Bartholomew and popularized in his book, Square Foot Gardening. In addition to offering garden installations and education, they also have an excellent soil mix as well as compost ready for your raised beds. Find out more at yourgardensolution.org. Good Seed Company has been in business for over 40 years and believes we have an inalienable right to open pollinated non-GMO seeds for common use. These are the seeds saved by our ancestors for thousands of years that can sustain us today and contribute to a bountiful future for the generations yet to come. Find out more about the rich history of this company and the importance of seed saving at goodseedco.net or shop the catalog of ecologically grown organic seeds online store.goodseedco.net. Now then, on to Eric Olson. I'll join you afterwards. Well, Eric, thank you for joining me today. As a past guest, I won't go through the normal introduction of asking you for for your biography and background and how you came to permaculture, but rather I'd like to really begin to dig in with your work with the Permaculture Skills Center. It's been some time since our last interview, which kind of introduced this idea, and I had also interviewed Miriam about the farm school and the other projects that you and your associates are involved in in California. But I'd like to hear more from you about how, from those early days of offering just a permaculture education that also gave a good skill set, had kind of developed over the years to become more of a holistic program, preparing people to become professional permaculture practitioners, something that I feel is necessary and vital for our community and lacking in many regards for people when they graduate from our 72-hour permaculture design course. Great. Thank you for that. And the Permaculture Skills Center is positioned really well to advance a vocational-type training track. And now we're in our second year of the Ecological Landscaper Immersion Program. So we've learned a ton in our first go of the program. The first go around, it was nine months, two days a week. And we've now taken feedback from that first cohort of students and, and folks who are interested in the program. We've now made it six months and three days a week. So we're learning and evolving a lot as, as we go along. And I think it's key to understand that when you do take a permaculture design course, that it is an introductory experience. And part of the niche that we want to fill as part of the Permaculture Skills Center is to really provide not just an advanced training where you go deeper into all the things you're introduced in a PDC. I mean, even even just going deeper into all of those parts of the curriculum takes 
years, really. Six months isn't even really enough to go deep into all of those things if you're trying to develop core competencies. So one of the things that we're doing now, and it's really exciting, it's a co-creative process with the five main teachers of the Eli program. We're honing in very specifically on what are actual competencies that students will take away when they graduate the program. And what I mean by that isn't just that, oh, I know how to design a gray water system, but that folks could actually leave and have the confidence and the experience to design and install a gray water system from beginning to end, just as an example. And if you start really thinking about all the parts and pieces of developing an ecological settlement, it would take years to learn competency in all the different forms of whether it's in the building, uh, you know, uh, building structures or energy systems, water systems, food production. You know, each one of these areas is really robust. And so at the Eli program, we go deep into all these aspects and then we pick uh, about five different core competencies and we're developing them right now as part of uh, preparing for the next Eli program. And then on top of that, every student that comes into our course is going to choose a capstone project. Because one thing that we've observed is that everybody's different. Everybody has a different focus, a different passion, and permaculture is a big wide umbrella. It's pretty difficult for people to think about how do I develop a permaculture business? I think one of the struggles that people have in that is it's such a big wide umbrella and they don't know where to start. So we really help people focus on aspects within the big permaculture umbrella to get really, really good at and to focus their energy into. And this capstone project that everyone will do as part of the program helps people frame you know, where they want to dive in first and possibly develop business out of that. And then uh, as another layer to all of this, everybody's getting core competencies around business development, social organizing, facilitation, project management, and all the kind of invisible social organizing strategies that just make running a business successful and working with people and building relationships with people. So not only do they have the on-the-ground skills necessary to work with the landscape based around this area of deep interest or specialty around this capstone project, but also some of the basic kind of skills of accounting and writing a business plan, those kinds of business development skills? Yes, exactly. And, and again, it's, it's a slightly different for each person. So while we have a core foundation for our curriculum where people get introduced to you know, new advanced layers of either design thinking or installation project management pieces or business, there's like the foundation for everybody. But then through their capstone project, they can deepen into any piece of that. Oh, somebody wants to start a business. Well, maybe part of their capstone is going to be getting together with a, a larger team of business mentors through the course of the program and maybe even starting their business during the program. But one of the things that we've discovered from the first course and also just thinking about how can we be as supportive of individuals as possible to actually getting them the kind of competency and confidence that they need to be successful, one of the things that we've learned through that process is that we do need to take a somewhat custom approach for each student. But we also have to balance that with not breaking our own backs by trying to develop a course that's too ambitious that we can't pull it off. So so we have to have a core foundation and then this next layer is really applying permaculture to the design of the curriculum. 
this next layer where there's like a custom track. And it's as part of coming to the Eli course and the farm school at the Permaculture Skills Center, we have a very large circle of mentors that either teach parts of the program, are core instructors or facilitators, or folks who are just in the community who are resources. And part of our goal as the core teaching team and facilitators is to really match up students with the right members of the community within their fields where they can deepen outside of class time, you know, on the weekend, during the breaks, or after the program itself, and have real-life uh, real networks, real-life connection to mentors. And as someone myself, and I think we've talked about this before, Scott, I never went to college. I, I didn't go down that academic track, and I'm sort of an example of someone who, from a young age, just trailblazed right into a permaculture worldview and wanted to create a life that way. And so for myself, that whole mentorship model was so important to me and the mentors I worked with. And so we're sort of creating that in a way that's a little more formalized and a little more organized than, you know, just, oh, I made a great relationship with this uh, natural builder and now I'm going to develop a mentor-mentee relationship with them. Those can be great. Any time you can set up that sort of relationship with someone, it's fabulous. Sometimes it's not very well organized and people can feel a little disappointed by, oh, they're really hard to reach or we haven't had enough time to connect. So we really try to organize people and their mentorship relationships in a way where they can get the most out of those relationships as well. Did this direction develop because of your own experience and having had mentors or was it something that was brought to you by students previously through permaculture design courses or something like that where there was a deficiency that they saw and were looking for a program like this? It's, it's a little bit of a both and. Uh, certainly my own personal experience weighs a lot in how I see success and, and the types of pathways we can develop for students. But what has become real clear to us just in a couple of years of running these programs now is a couple different things. And these are really interesting observations, I think, to point out. Sometimes it's not even the content that a mentor is sharing, but it's just their personality that attracts somebody. And someone who is maybe an, um, you know, a master at, say, building ponds could be a wonderful teacher and mentor, but maybe lack some of the social skills that people need to feel engaged and passionate. So well, there's also a training of mentors in this as well to make, this, to make these relationships really thrive. But we've just discovered that really igniting people's passion and when they, when they find people who are approachable and supportive and communicative, that really does something for a student when they feel that kind of relationship developing with a mentor and so we're just really looking a lot at that. We're still at the beginning phases of how these mentorship relationships can evolve. And at the farm school, Miriam Vallot, our director of the farm school, she's put a lot of energy into actually how to structure and craft these mentor relationships. And we've had some really good success and we've had some challenges. So this is certainly an evolving piece to how we do this. But one that we've discovered through students and personal experience is pretty vital. So not only are you providing mentorship directly for the students, but you're also helping to develop the mentors themselves so that they can be more effective in that role? Absolutely. I mean, kind of the way I see it is there's an opportunity here where you have people who have been in the field for a really, really long time, 
have amazing experience and they're kind of looking for what's next. I mean, I can't say that all mentors are elders, but I would say that within the mentor community, there's quite a few elders there, folks who I would consider elders in the movement, whether it's permaculture or it's agriculture or, or whatnot. And it's this really great opportunity where we're realizing that doing this work is just, a, just as much for the mentor as it is for the student. And there's an edge that we get to play with here and interact, which is that sort of the generational gap that we experience in our culture and rekindling a relationship with our elders in a way that's positive and supportive. And so this is just emerging in this field. And we see it as an opportunity, almost like a, I almost think of it like a retirement plan for elder permaculturists or farmers who, you know, they just can't get out there and do the projects anymore. It's just, you know, time to slow down and, but they have so much experience and so much to share. And so how can we create structures and opportunities for that kind of mutual relationship to unfold? And as a result of that, you get a, a cross-generational, multi-generational benefit both to those mentors who are moving into that retirement phase, if you will, as well as those people who are just coming up and getting involved and becoming a part of all of this. Exactly. Yeah. What has been the student's reaction to not only the class itself, but also the mentor aspects of this? Well, so far we've seen a great response to this. One thing that often happens with the mentors is in some ways they're looking to find people to sort of help continue their legacy of the work that they've done. So I just really encourage folks in the younger generations who want to get into this field to, to really seek out the elders and the mentors because they really want to pass on not only knowledge and information, but resources, connections, you know, maybe even physical resources like land or tools or money. So there's a lot there. You know, we have to be aware that, especially in the younger generation, and I'm, I guess I'm kind of in the middle now. I'm 36. I'm still kind of young, you know, but I'm not really, I don't know if I could be considered a youth anymore. I still feel youthful. One thing that I've noticed in the older generations is just that they've built these amazing systems and these amazing organizations and amazing projects and networks, and they don't always have the folks to pass it on to. And it's something I talked about a lot when I was doing a lot of youth activist work in my early 20s is how does this work carry on to the next generation if there's not a concerted effort to do that? So that's one whole side of it. And I would say at the Eli course, we have a lot of mentorship built into the program itself but we don't have a formal uh, mentorship program afterwards. But we do with the farm school. We have a six-month mentorship program after the farm school ends, the program part ends. But this is just an edge that we're working with more and more and how we're starting to structure our programs to allow for these mentor-mentee relationships to evolve. The other piece, too, is that the more that we can provide a diversity of voices, like I think it's wonderful when you sit together with, say, a panel of experienced practitioners, and they all have a different answer to a question. I think that's wonderful. That's wonderful to see the diversity. I've always said that there's a thousand different ways to design the same property and to have it be successful. So I, you know, part of the point I was trying to make before is that people are going to gravitate towards the style and energy that they feel passionate about, 
And so we just want to offer as many of those opportunities to make those connections as possible through or not only our programming, but even just how we organize out in the community to just be really open to a diversity of voices and then making those connections however we can. That diversity of voices is one of the things that's always been fascinating to me and why I try to reach out to so many different people is because within this community, knowing that there are so many different people doing so many different types of work that the more that we know about and the more that we hear about, the more likely that someone who's just getting started can find someone who resonates with them, whether that's a small-scale farmer or someone who's running a large, broad-scale business or someone who's applying permaculture to something as far off of what we might think of as permaculture as to something like video game design. There are lots of people who are interested in this and are beginning now over the last half decade or so to begin applying these ethics and principles to more than just the landscape. Oh, exactly. And thank you for broadening the scope there because I think that sometimes people really narrow that scope down in, ter- in terms of permaculture in particular and forget that it's actually a design system that can be applied to any kind of systems design if you're working with the ethics and principles. And I think that's one of the beautiful expressions of permaculture is that it can influence design and methodology in not only physical systems, but social and economic systems as well. And we're at a very interesting time, I think, in the movement where the movement is sort of trying to identify itself. And one thing that we're seeing is people are identifying in these different sort of places, um, you know, different camps, as you will. And sometimes I think that we're kind of we're kind of missing the overall design system approach of permaculture when we start to try to break it up a little too much. So I think it's really encouraging that folks are taking the principles, applying the principles in, in such diverse ways on the planet right now. And it's such a decentralized movement in a way that the more that we can thread into as many different industries as possible, I think the better because you know we've got 9 billion mouths to feed and We've got huge energy systems that need transforming and and economic systems that need to transform. And so we kind of need everything we we can muster to make the kinds of scaled transitions that I think many of us feel are needed for the health and safety of the planet and its people. And so I think part of what we're seeing is, is how is permaculture scaling and in what ways and are we being held back in certain areas because of identity and uh, can we open up new areas because we bring an efficient and uh, holistic view of how to figure out solutions to problems and can that be a focus? So then do you see the decentralized nature of permaculture as vital to the viability to this movement? I think it is what it is in a way. Like I do think it's vital in many ways and, and I also understand where folks who are developing standards and looking at a more centralized structural approach to the movement. I understand where all that's coming from, but in some ways I think that it's been unleashed now. And I, I, I just, I, I have a hard time thinking that we're going to somehow be able to pull all the threads back and then cozy it up in some sort of centralized structure. And it just doesn't seem realistic to me, although I totally support the efforts for standards and such, because we do have quality issues out there. But I think that the decentralized nature of the permaculture movement is something that can be embraced 
to the degree that we do it within the realms of applying permaculture, that we understand that diversity equals resilience and really focus our relationships on that. It's okay to have disagreement about things, but one of the things that really bothers me about the balance between this decentralized expression of permaculture and then all the issues that it brings up and the conversations that we're having about the issues, that one of the things that bothers me is that the way I see it, everybody is specific to their place. You know, if we have a diverse planet and it's not just the eco- ecosystems, it's just not, it's not just racial diversity, it's cultural diversity, it's political diversity, it's, it's, you know, religious diversity. We have so many different kinds of people living in so many different kinds of places. And I think that we get stuck on, or sometimes people get stuck on that permaculture has to be, you know, X, Y, and Z. And if it's not X, Y, and Z, then it's not permaculture. But, you know, somebody who lives in the rural Midwest might have a different experience because the land is different, the people are different, the economy is different, the way people grew up is different. And so I really want to just accept the diversity and that, that the decentralization that we see is an expression of application of permaculture within all these very specific type scenarios. And sometimes I think that kind of goes over our head when people are arguing about this or that, that's permaculture, that's not permaculture. If you're in the East Bay you know, Oakland, Berkeley, that area, you bet social justice is a vital piece of how the permaculture movement can provide for that community because those communities have have and are in a kind of oppressed state by whether it be the government or corporations or what have you or history. And that's real. And those are edges that they need to, that is, is you know, I feel it's important to support how we care for people and care for the earth, those are real issues and obstacles. Just like if you're trying to build a dam, you know, you're trying to build a pond in sandy soil, you're going to have issues and obstacles you need to deal with there. It's the same thing. But if you take permaculture and you go apply it into a far-off village in Latin America, that's going to be a totally different expression culturally, socially, politically, economically, ecologically. So... I think that what's happening in the movement is exactly in some ways what the result of the power of this design system, the power is that it can spread to every inch of the globe and affect people's lives in that way. But the problem is, is that some of us uh, people in permaculture movement, we have identified with permaculture being in a particular way. We've, we've, we're so identified with it to be this one way that now we're feeling threatened somehow. And I wonder sometimes because of the very almost top-down approach in which permaculture was taught by Bill Mollison in the very beginning, that he was the one who evangelized these ideas, that as much as we've talked about a long-term approach in bioregionalism, that some of that's been missed or forgotten, that there's, there's a deeper root to this that touches on the space that we're in. We constantly refer to that idea of, you know, how would you design a particular site? And the usual almost cliche answer is it depends. But yet then our education so often is very much we have this manual, we have a direct outline, and this is what it should be. And though I feel that there's a need for an homage to that, certainly, but sometimes I feel that basing our curriculum on something that's 30 years old is like teaching geology from a book that doesn't include plate tectonics or biology from a book that doesn't include DNA. 
that there's this great core material, but so much time has passed since these ideas developed, and that now we're kind of in a place that it's not a matter of what to include in the permaculture design course, because we have great ideas about that, but to remember where it's being taught, and to apply that bioregionally to the people and the culture and the place that this material is going to be shared with others. Yeah, I totally agree with that, and I, I feel that well, let's talk about that for a sec. I mean, the foundations that are set, you know, should be honored. And I wouldn't go so far as to say, well, let's take out, you know, three quarters of the regular permaculture curriculum because maybe it's not totally appropriate for this place. I think there's something to be said with having a core foundation that we all kind of get to have a, a shared experience with, say, through PDC. But I like what you said. I mean, we are going to evolve. Everything is going to constantly evolve on this planet and in our lives, and new information is going to come to light. New obstacles are going to come to light with the ramping up of climate change and, you know, climate issues around the planet. This is desperately asking for a new kind of view of solutions that could operate at various scales and some of that might be at odds with some things you might see in the designer's manual or whatnot. But I think the core piece about applying the, the ethics of permaculture and a natural systems approach to design, if those can stay constant threads, then it's kind of like the things don't matter as much. Oh, are you building a cob house or a straw bill house? Or are you did you put the right kind of irrigation pipe in? Because this one's better. Those things are just kind of semantics that are just put to the side. Those are little details we can figure out. Each community and organization and individual can figure that out on their own. All the best to them. But the design frame, I think, can be a core foundation. But I think what's happened is that now we've kind of evolved from permaculture being you know, permanent agriculture, having more of a land-based focus, to, you know, really moving more in some communities, in some areas, of moving into the application of permaculture in that social economic realm. I think this has been unexplored waters through the life of permaculture. And a lot of amazing ground has been made, especially in the last 10 years. And so it's interesting just to back up a little bit and to kind of segue, you know, before the intro, you were, we were talking a little bit about being a, prof a professional permaculturist and, and what's it like to run a professional permaculture business. And 10 years ago, when I started Permaculture Artisans, our design contracting company, there was a real need to professionalize permaculture, to you know pull it out of sort of the realm of alternatives and bring it into something that is relevant for all different kinds of people that are not just sort of subculture type thinking progressive people, but everybody. And now 10 years later, things have changed so much that you know, a lot of people who are really into what permaculture has to offer, they just will not identify with it because there's a lot of critique around permaculture and using the word and what that brings up for folks. So I've been in this very interesting position where, well, my companies have the word permaculture in them, and I'm not about to change that. So we become a little bit of a target for uh, well, what is permaculture? Your permaculture? So then you must represent this, this, or that depending on what people's identity and experience with permaculture in the past is. And we're constantly finding that we have to re-educate people on what permaculture actually is. It's not some strong ideology. It's not progressive or alternative. And this is the way I see it, is that it's 
systems thinking to develop solutions for design that are ecological and care for people. And we can do that in a myriad of different ways. It's kind of unlimited to how we can, you know, apply. Like the yield of a system is unlimited. We apply that kind of thinking to anything. And we're just all of a sudden into this really diverse place. So I kind of push back on all this identification around permaculture as a thing and really try to focus on it as a process, a design process and a way of looking at systems. And I think the more that we can keep our conversations there, then all of this divisiveness doesn't become so necessary in the conversation. What I take from what you were saying, and this, and this is something that I asked Penny Livingston Stark about, is whether or not permaculture is a design system and a movement. And it seems that it is both of those. And I just want to check in. Is that the way that you see this, though, not only as a design system, but also as a body of practitioners who are moving these ideas forward? I do. I do. I, I, I agree that it's, it's both a design system and a movement. But I think when we talk about it as a movement, this is where we get ourselves into trouble because within the umbrella of quote-unquote permaculture is actually a subset of a whole bunch of different movements. And I think this is where we're tripping ourselves up is because, you know, people in the agriculture realm, organic farmers, ecological agriculturists or regenerative agriculturists or however people identify, there's a lot of those folks who just do not identify with permaculture because they have a critique through meeting a bunch of folks coming out of a PDC maybe, and maybe, you know, they had some bad experiences with some permaculture practitioners, and so then they dubbed permaculture this or that, when I would argue that those people are part of the permaculture movement, in fact, all these ecological agriculture folks, because inherently they're applying the same principles to the landscape, to growing food, and that that's an important pillar within the overall movement. So it's, so yes, it is, and we have to unpack it a little bit because it's, it's not one big broad brush movement. And that's a place for those of us who have been doing this for a long time within PDCs and elsewhere is where we have the ability to influence the conversation to be explicit about our meaning when we're referring to something as permaculture between the design system, which is fairly straightforward, between its principles and ethics, which then lead us to our strategies and techniques, as opposed to talking about permaculture as a movement, which is even in some ways bigger and broader because of the many different people, disciplines, and backgrounds that wind up stepping underneath of it. Yes, exactly. And we need to keep that thread of really keep grounding these conversations in and weaving people in. I was just on a panel over the weekend at a local Farmers, farmers Guild event, and there was a whole conversation there, the intersection of permaculture and agriculture. And it was a really lovely conversation about these intersects, and we had some amazing farmers there who are applying agroecology principles into their work. They don't call it permaculture, but they're applying it. We had this great conversation about how we really need to focus on building relationship within these different groups and organizations and really realize and understand the design implications of thinking whole systems and applying these ethics and that they really are integrative of all these things. And I want to back up just a little bit to something that you said about people involved in agriculture and interacting with people who are just getting out of like a PDC or something like that. One piece of the conversation that I feel personally needs to be more 
move to the forefront when someone's taking a PDC is what we touched on also in the beginning, that the permaculture design course is really just an introduction to these ideas. And one thing that was very clarifying for me was when I sat down and I did the math on it, that if you take a standard three-credit course at the college level, for example, that normally over a semester you'll wind up spending around 39 hours in class. And so as a result of that, the 72-hour PDC as it's currently developed is not quite the equivalent of six college credits. And using that as kind of a framework to realize, can you imagine most people in a professional setting who are used to dealing with people with advanced degrees or something like that, having someone come in who has the equivalent of a year of one particular subject and telling them how that they should run their business or do their work when this may be somebody who's been practicing agriculture for 30 years or have some form of an advanced education about the work that they do. Not that I want to, in saying that, discourage people from the PDC because I think it's a great place to start, but to understand how it really is just a taste and how programs like yours with the ecological landscape immersion or the farm school are really helping to develop people past that introduction into something much bigger and much more to be able to walk out there and not only represent themselves well, but also permaculture. So that kind of a pejorative perspective that some people have had can be ameliorated in some ways with a new professional practice. Yes. And thank you for bringing this piece up because what is unnerving about when I hear the stories about, oh, this person came out of a PDC and they came on my farm and they tried to tell me how wrong I was doing this or that and that I should be doing this other thing and it doesn't make sense. And, oh, we hear these stories over and over again. And the unnerving part is when folks take a permaculture design course or they go through one of our programs, the most important thing to take away is not the understanding about eco-literacy. It's not knowing about a swale. It's not knowing how to mix cob. Those are not the most important things to take away. The most important thing to take away is the ability to observe a system or a community and interact with that system or community in such a way where you can understand the patterns that are taking place, the resources and constraints, and help support that system or community towards an ecological alignment or developing their community goals or whatnot. And the point that I'm making is that when you go and meet the farmer who has 30 years experience or whoever it may be, the first thing you do is you just listen and you ask questions and you don't give advice. And that's the role of a permaculturist isn't to be jumping in and giving advice, isn't to be making suggestions. If you want to really understand a situation or a system, then you have to humbly take the time to listen, to ask questions, to gather data, to deeply connect with all the various patterns that are playing out in the system. And once you have an understanding of that, then you can say, wow, you've got a really amazing thing going on. I just learned so much just by listening and taking it all in. And oh, there's this one little system connection point that I, I haven't seen you make. And you can make a suggestion that might just be one little leverage point, but that might be all it takes to you know, support that system in furthering your goals. And so when I go do a consultation now, I spend the first hour just asking questions, just listening. And I actually tell my clients, I say, I'm not going to provide you any suggestions for the first hour. I'm only going to observe. I'm going to ask you questions. And as you go through that 
first hour or maybe even two hours, depending on the scale of the situation, you start to understand the pattern. And then you can start to provide feedback. And so, so when I hear these stories, it's kind of like what you're bringing up. It's almost like the core tool that one should come out of a PDC with. They Folks didn't come out of the PDC with that core tool. And that bothers me more than somebody building a swale wrong is when folks don't take the time to listen and observe and really do that deep analysis before making suggestions. Because our principles of permaculture don't just apply to the landscape, but also our work as consultants and designers in the social realm as well. And that one of the first principles is observe, you know, is take the time to observe. And so you don't just take a PDC and go out there and start telling people how to do stuff. You're just recapitulating what you learned in the PDC. You go out there and you observe. And then you start interacting once you actually have some basis of understanding of the system you're trying to interact with, whether that be physical or social. Which gives a lot more credence to one of the pieces of advice that I was given in my teacher training was to make sure that I had two years of experience outside of my PDC before I really started trying to design professionally or anything else to have that body knowledge and the observation and actual, and actual application of the ethics and the principles in my own life for not only personal transformation, but also in working through the landscape and with others. So that then when I walk into a situation, I'm living and embodying these ideas, not just walking in with an intellectual idea of what should be. And it makes such a difference for the person that's receiving that. They really can sense that. I was in a, a four-hour consultation recently for a festival, and I spent the first few hours not talking, really hardly at all. There was like 10, 12 people all, you know, talking about this or that, this or that, and having a lot of content, information, uh, concepts. And I just kept listening, listening, listening. And then every now and then I would just add something that seemed to be missing, a little bridge, a little connector point, a little bridge. And it's just amazing to see how that could change the conversation and move it in the right direction, but it actually took very little of my intervention. It actually took more of my listening so I could identify the places where intervening would have a benefit. And I think you're right. It does take time to have that be a natural way of approaching a system or situation. And I mean, I've got almost 20 years experience. I could, I could walk onto a landscape and just start making suggestions and feel confident, the confidence that I could just go on and just start, you know, from minute one, say, oh, do this, do that, do this, do that. And, you know, we could probably have something that could work well. But that's not really permaculture, you know. Well, what you say there reminds me that one of the lines that I heard for a long time is that we're trying to design ourselves out of the system. And I feel that that's really a fallacy because we're only designing these systems because they meet human needs, whether that's a need to restore an ecosystem or a need to grow food. It's our own projections on the landscape of what should be there or what should be done that create what it is that we're doing. And that if we're working with a client or we're working with a particular piece of land, being aware of the goals and needs of the space that we're working within and of our client and I was sitting on a PDC once and I was talking with some students afterwards about practicing professionally. And one of the things that continually comes up to me is that I would rather meet 100% of a client's goals, even if only 1% of the design is permaculture, so that it gets implemented rather than do something that is 100% permaculture, but only reaches 1% of those clients' goals because most of those will never 
be implemented. Nobody will ever do anything with them. And that there's a need to remember that human element in the work that we do because it's vital to the permaculture practice. And in some ways, I think to remove ourselves from it, we also continue to push that idea that we're separate from nature when really we need to reintegrate with the landscape and the work that we're doing so that we can be connected with that space, whether it means that we're out there, you know, protesting and being activists or trying to grow food. Right, right. And I, I'm coming around seeing kind of what you're saying, in some ways, designing humans back into the system in a way that is that is integrative and, and supportive of ecology it seems like a, a key need for the planet right now. And then, the you know, sort of the other side of it is that when you were mentioning about meeting a client's goals, and even if only 1% was permaculture and kind of that whole story, and people have to operate where they feel comfort. And if we want to provide services only for people who think fully permaculturally, that's totally cool. And yet, you know, at the same time, those of us who do want to see the solutions that an ecological design frame could offer the planet at scale, you know, for those of us who want to see that happen, one of the core things that you realize quickly right off the bat is that most people do not think from an ecological point of view. Most people won't even jump on the bandwagon if you start off your conversation telling them how wrong they are, you know, and this has been a big critique of mine, especially recently, is that the whole framing at which we are sharing the messages, the solutions that we could come to through a permaculture design frame, the way that we're framing it and messaging it out to the world, especially in you know, Western culture, in some cases can be a real turnoff to mainstream America, if you will, or even diverse communities, even poor communities. It could be a real turnoff to lace our message with, well, if you don't do this, this, or that, then you're wrong or you're bad, or to somehow have a judgment and prejudice around the way people are doing things because they're not ecological, and then to sort of call them out on that. Like, I have no problem calling out corporations and governments for the things they do and calling out people for dark things that they do. At the same time, though, I think a lot of people, they have, they've, they've grown up in a different culture and a different experience and situation, and we kind of need to meet people where that, they're at and actually attract them into the fold of thinking ecologically and, and, and building community. And so often I don't use the word permaculture when I talk to folks right off the bat, and I'm happy to work with people to get their food forest amongst their rose garden. You know, it's like I had a mentor tell me once, she gave me some really great advice, and the advice is that, you know, find the thing that the client just really, really wants the thing they love. So maybe it's roses. This particular client really wants roses. Great. We're going to plant you the most amazing rose garden. It just happens that your rose garden is going to be watered through water, uh, water that we caught off the roof. We're going to be uh, using on-site or local soil amendments for that. You know, we're going to be mulching those roses. So take the entry point. You know, what are the different entry points with people or communities or businesses and let's accomplish those goals and do it in a loving way and slowly start threading in more ecological efficiency into the system. And what people get from that experience is, wow, my rose garden is amazing. 
And, oh, my gosh, it's watered by rainwater. I didn't even think that was possible. I feel even better about my system now. And, hey, Eric, what else could we water with rainwater, you know? And it's like those little entry points are so important. If we don't get lost in the whole ego mentality thing of like, oh, but they're driving around, you know, in that car that I don't like, or I saw them shopping at Walmart the other day. And if we don't let those, like, judgments get in the way of helping people along in the journey to reconnect with the nature and with themselves, you know, I think that we're not really relevant until we are able to, to see that kind of pathway towards scaling solutions. As always, these conversations go far too quickly, and I think we should have another one here in the near future. But we have reached that point in the interview where... I would ask you for your final thoughts for the listeners from everything that we've covered about not only examining permaculture education and professional practice, as well as your work with the Permaculture Skills Center, the Ecological Landscape Immersion Program, the Farm School. How would you like to close out this interview today, Eric? Thank you. Well, as always, so lovely to talk to you, and let's definitely talk again soon. And what what I would just like to say is just to invite folks to visit us at the permacultureskillcenter.org and to know that our approach in applying the principles of permaculture into our work is with an open heart really and we really want to build relationships with people and the model that's emerging we didn't really get to talk about it too much in this talk yet but the model that we have emerging is what I would call a business guild a permaculture business guild and Within this guild, we have permaculture artisans and we have permaculture skill center. We have a new mapping company called Foresight Mapping. And we also have a series of smaller companies being supported by and or run by students in an incubation type atmosphere that are starting to emerge in the ecology of our businesses. And what we're doing is we're applying permaculture to social economic organizing. And so what I would just like to say is stay tuned with us as we develop and emerge this new model. And we're very open to discussions about how do, how do we create advanced vocational training systems for people? What do people need? And I would just support folks to letting us know, what do you think is a great way to help people become professional and to learn skills in doing this work? Because as we all know, there's a level of urgency to get this work done on the planet right now. And we're happy to work with anybody in making that happen. Well, Eric, I thank you for all your work and your invitation for people to connect with you. I'll make sure that folks can get in touch with you via links in the show notes and elsewhere so that they can easily and readily find more information about you and all the programs that you're offering. So thank you again so much for joining me today for this conversation. Thank you too so much. The paths within permaculture are many. And as I continue to navigate social permaculture, and what it means to live an ecologically sound life in community with others. The work of Eric, his colleagues, and others like them are important for creating the next generation of landscape-oriented permaculture practitioners. The Permaculture Skills Center offers a variety of trainings that really focus on creating a career for students and is the kind of professional practice that I would like to see in parallel with something more academic. But in particular, I like what Eric is doing because they provide opportunities, whether you're interested in landscaping, 
agriculture or permaculture. If you're near Sebastopol, California, and are considering any of these paths, the programs here are definitely worth investigating. Permaculture Artisans and the Permaculture Skills Center continue to raise the bar of what it means to practice permaculture professionally. And I'm thankful for Eric to have the conversation with me that he did during this interview, because we looked at things a little bit more deeply and critically than we might find in regular articles promoting these ideas. There are some warts to go with this that we as a community need to work on. And I'm really excited that Eric and his crew continue to do this and just make it more accessible and more professional in a way that is meaningful to the world outside of our community. Find out more about Eric and his work at permacultureartisans.com and you can find out about the numerous educational offerings of the Permaculture Skills Center as well as read their blog or listen to their podcast at permacultureskillscenter.org. Along the way, if I can assist you wherever you call home and whatever leg of the journey you're on, get in touch. My phone number, which is the quickest way to reach me, is 717-827-6266. The email address is show at permaculturepodcast.com. That's also the PayPal address for the show, so if you use that service and like what you hear and want to shoot something my way, you can send it there. Though there are now some sponsors for the show, I still couldn't do this without your direct and ongoing support as a listener. You are what make this show possible. And if you find that digital means are not your preferred way to reach me, you can also drop something in the mail. That address is the Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. If you'd like to connect with the show and other listeners, you can also become a sustaining member at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. On Facebook, you can find the show as The Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann. On Twitter, I am at permaculturecst. I'm also going on a family vacation soon to explore the beaches of Rehoboth, Delaware, and also Assateague Island, and will be posting pictures of the plants, animals, and other interests from that bioregion on Instagram, which is probably becoming my favorite way to share information on the go. You can find me there as Permaculture Podcast. From here, I'll be on the road in April, returning to Berea, Kentucky in the Clear Creek community. While there, on Saturday, April 23rd, 2016, the Clear Creek Schoolhouse is hosting Spring Into Permaculture. The day starts at noon and heads on into the evening with a potluck, an in-person recording of the podcast, and Jeremy Zimmerman, previous guest and author of the excellent book Make Mead Like a Viking, will be teaching a mead-making workshop from 1 to 3 p.m. Find out more at clearcreekschoolhouse.org. After that, on June 18, 2016, is the Mid-Atlantic Permaculture Convergence, outside of Charlestown, West Virginia, hosted by Emma Huvos of the Riverside Project. The keynote speaker of this day is Michael Judd, talking about his experiences as a permaculture practitioner, beginning with Project Bonafide, and then what he's been doing since returning to the States. And there will also be classes and workshops on living in the gift, animals in permaculture, broadacre permaculture, whole systems learning, and plant walks and tree ID sessions. As this event is limited to 100 tickets, pick up yours today at midatlanticpermaculturekonvergence.eventbrite.com. Also, unrelated to all things permaculture, are you a steampunk? If so, I'll be at the Steampunk World's Fair May 13th through the 15th, 2016, where 
I'm currently being talked into presenting a class on the history of the sword, focusing on the Renaissance period. If something happens that I'm not presenting, you can probably find me or photographer John at the Cane's Enabled Tent in the courtyard of the main hotel. In the world of the podcast, however, next up on the docket is the first of the Philadelphia Roundtable recordings, followed by an interview on Gandhian nonviolence with Chris Moore-Backman. Until then, take care of Earth, yourself, and each other.